Welcome to the Architectural Education Off the Record Podcast, where we discuss everything, something, and nothing about architecture. I'm your host, Vincent Hui. In this episode, we're going to be dealing with travel because travel is quite a big component in the architectural science education, both in the curriculum as well as as an extracurricular activity. So I'm joined by three students today. Uh, we got Viv, John, and Gregor. Viv, you want to introduce yourself first? Uh, sure. Um, my name is Vivian. I am currently uh, in my co-op fourth term or third term, and I'm uh, originally from Kenya, but I moved to Toronto to study. Um, All right. Yeah. Okay, no problem. We'll get to more on that. But John? My name is John Benner. I've recently completed the Horizon International Exchange Opportunity at UDL for the past six months. I'm currently a student expecting to graduate, uh, I guess now, fall 2020 with COVID. Yep. And Gregor? I'm uh, Gregor Tratnik. I graduated uh, the Ryerson uh, Architectural Science Undergraduate Program in 2018 and I'm currently working towards my master's of architecture second and, year thesis and you did your uh, travel component where yeah I did my fourth year travel component in Bergen Norway yeah there we go so let's just go through this very quickly because um, I think we all agree that travel is not only just entertainment and fun. I mean, let's be honest here. Uh, if you really wanted to go and see Rome, for example, uh, you know, you could take a nice vacation with your family and go see Rome. I mean, what does travel really have to do with respect to the education of an architect? I mean, that, that's, that's something that's come about left, right and center where some people just uh, see it as an accessory. Some people see it as like um, more of an expense. Um, I'll start with the youngest one, uh, Viv. What do you say is the value of travel in your architectural education? Um, I would say that I found that a lot of travel, I mean, a lot of value comes from the cultural exposure, um, kind of stepping out of what you know or understand your city or your town to be um, and experiencing that somewhere else, I think has been um, very eye-opening. Um, and then architecturally, you get to see uh, and experience a lot of buildings that you may have not had the opportunity in your hometown. Um, and then I would also say networking and kind of meeting new people with different perspectives or similar ones and kind of sharing interests, ideas is pretty valuable. Well, I'm going to jump into that one just for a sec, um, because there is a difference between you and John and Gregor, uh, aside from gender and, and year. But I mean, the one critical one for this today's topic is that you unlike the two gentlemen here, are not a domestic student. And this is where I want to bring the contrast because on the one hand, you've got the kind of vacation uh, scenario where a kid travels out and sees, uh, let's say Paris or Rome, and then they take the photos, they see the culture, they get a sense of the architecture, both new and old, right? And they come back home, right? And that's like the superficial kind of touristy thing. And at the same time, uh, you've got on the other end of the spectrum, a uh, person like you, who is traveling and literally immersing themselves in say Toronto and studying and not only seeing the curriculum, but also seeing the culture and the, and the city and the architecture there. So I would say that these travel opportunities kind of sit in the middle. So, you know, in, in light of that, can you better define that middle for me? As opposed to kind of, um, as you mentioned, having to immerse myself in the city where there's kind of, you do have to learn a lot more about the people, how things work, um, because there's an expectation that you kind of have to assimilate with that. When you do travel, um, I find that that's not so much the expectation. You obviously respect the culture, uh, you explore, 
um, and you enjoy your time there, but um, you're not necessarily having to do things like the locals do in the sense of everyday life. Hmm. Does that make sense? No, it, it kind of does, um, because then I'm going to jump into the two gentlemen here, starting with John. I mean, one of the issues that comes about is that immersion, right? Obviously, it's not a vacation. It's actually a, mm -hmm. a learning opportunity. And I think, you know, Viv is talking about this cultural value. And as a person who actually completed, was it four months that was out in Delft? Uh, six months from six February months. to July. Wow. So, um, John, care to explain not only the nature of the program that you were in, but also just um, can you allude to the notion of culture? Because it's more than just simply going into a place and saying, oh, the, the idiosyncrasies and the mannerisms of, this of these people is like X or the architecture is mm -hmm. kind of typified by this. I mean, there's more than just that. So please start with yeah. the program and tell me about the cultural issues. Yeah, so the exchange program that I completed at Delft was the Masters of Architecture program over there. And that's just because we have four years of undergrad versus they have three years, so it's easy to make the transition over into their curriculum. Uh, with regards to your question, there are, I guess, more intangible elements that are picked up within the culture, like, for example, the work-life balance um, with, within the uh, academic institute um, that I really picked up on, or whether it's the, the customs of the students or the uh, people's uh, the people in the cities and such. Uh, those are the major things that I, re I really picked up versus just simply learning about architecture, learning about a city and actually going there and experiencing it. Hmm. Um, in terms of work-life balance specifically, like I said, uh, I'm used to so much more of a, I guess, a workaholic routine from what Ryerson taught me or from what any, I think, North American architecture program would teach. Mm -hmm. uh, but the biggest thing in Delft was the, um, the work-life balance. Like, because it's such a larger institute, it's more regimented, it's more regulated. So a lot of the people end up going home, cutting off work about six or eight, and then just calling it a night versus here, it's just constant work. Hmm. So, I, I mean, that's one thing that does come about. And, and we do have other episodes planned for how architecture education or you know, the profession uh, deals with that work-life balance. But uh, I think it might benefit the audience just to know where exactly is Delft and you know, can you just elaborate on a couple of more details on just what cultural differences did you see? Mm -hmm. Uh, well, Delft specifically is in Netherlands, more so the southern central part of the country. And being a bit more specific with the differences compared to, I guess, Canadian institutes in particular, uh, there was more of a almost liberal or laid back perspective, I felt, from the, um, the way teaching was introduced. It was a lot more in groups versus from what I'm used to is one-on-one -on -one with a professor working on studio projects, for example. Uh, but in this case, what I was exposed to was more of a group dynamics and uh, vibing off of everyone's perspectives and like feeding off of it almost like a meeting. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of the structures that the school um, established, I think those were uh, fairly different. But also mm -hmm. I think the even even fun little things like uh, the drinking culture. Oh, um, at TU Delft, there's um, <laughs> it's important to know. In TU Delft, there's um, a campus bar that everyone goes to, all the professors go to as well when there's um, off seasons and stuff. And I think little things like that really affect the way you perceive your professors, the way you interact. It's a lot more laid back and even a bit more personal to some degree versus I think when you don't have those social cues or social dynamics, things can be a bit more formal, a bit more uh, regimented. Just for the record, I want to put it on, on the table here. Uh, the profs at Ryerson Architectural Science are also very approachable and some of us do have alcohol oh, problems too. Down. So I just want to put that out. <laughs> cool. uh, geez, man. 
Um, okay, so, so you've talked about the cultural values, but I think one other thing that comes about, I think we're talking now about exchanges uh, directly, but um, mm -hmm. Gregor, when you were out in Anna and Elsa land, um, what, I mean, what cultural differences did you pick up on out in Norway? Um, so I guess to kind of just touch on the education, because I think it's important, the biggest thing to understand about the Bergen School of Architecture is that it's, a, it's an independent school and they have a very, very different educational structure from any other program compared to Canada, but within Norway as well. Um, I can't remember that there's a Norwegian word for the name of it, uh, but it basically alludes to an open framework. And the, the gist of it is that every year there are two to three master's courses and every year the master's courses evolve or are developed and are brand new courses. And so what they're trying to do is within every course establish a framework, but allow for a sense of controlled chaos to happen within that framework. So you get a sense of course schedules where um, you have five days a week, solid 10 hours of class, or you have uh, um, sometimes you go two weeks independent study and don't see anyone in your class. So yeah. It's very fluid in that sense. Uh, the, the school um, allows for a lot of freedom and kind of to what John was saying, there's a very liberal and progressive approach to architecture. They're, they're asking some very high-end, uh, some very high-level questions, kind of uh, beyond a lot of the things that I was used to seeing in my undergrad at Ryerson, hmm. which ended up preparing me for my master's. But I think further to that, uh, when we, uh, three people from, uh, from my cohort, went to uh, Bergen, and what we tried to do was we were presented with the option, essentially three options of living, was getting a place together, or uh, living in the sort of uh, dormitories that were provided through a partnership with the university. Um, but instead, we all chose to make an effort and find our own living situations hmm. uh, within, the, within the neighborhood and the small township um, surrounding the school. And so all three of us ended up living with uh, these local Norwegian Bergen residents. And uh, we met a lot of really interesting people that way. Kind so, of, so uh, wait, wait. So you actually, uh, the three of you guys actually said, we're going to go and see other people now. And you just like went your three different ways and said, I've, I found a new Norwegian person and I'm going to stay with him or her. And that, that, that's how you guys got landed in, in, in Norway? Yeah, we, we made the effort to, to, to meet as many people as we could. And, and one of the ways in doing that was to kind of make sure that we weren't kind of living together and, and um, sociopathic. Sort of immersing ourselves into that stuff. Not bad, not bad. So I, I just want to go back a couple of steps. And now that we understand the general gist of, you know, what's exciting and what, what, what some values are for going out and taking these travel opportunities, I think I should mention uh, the various uh, classifications of travel within uh, the Department of Architectural Science. So what Gregor and John are speaking to uh, pertain to the exchange programs where students uh, from one country or one institution come to Ryerson and then at the same time students from Ryerson as Gregor and John have done uh, go to other affiliated institutions in those other countries so it's literally a um, you know students go in from one place students go out from the same place right so that's how it works and it's usually for anywhere between uh, four to six months and the only issue that arises is of course sometimes the European or the you know Asian terms start a little bit um, later 
than the Canadian system. So it does potentially delay graduation. But I mean, it's, it's also a once in a lifetime opportunity. So that's like the, the, the apex kind of um, international travel that we deal with. The next one is, of course, we have these travel studios. So um, I don't think any of you three have been uh, participants to that. But um, there are studios that do go out and travel. Uh, some of our colleagues have uh, taken, taken students to China, Turkey, Greece, um, Brazil, um, uh, Germany, of course. So we've, we've seen students um, have opportunities to, again, get that cultural value, but also immerse themselves in the kind of pedagogical issues that are at play in those territories. The third level is, of course, if you can't afford to have a studio go out there or a stay for four months or longer, um, what you could do is say, uh, have a school-related trip, which usually goes to um, maybe a week or two. Um, so that's not uncommon. I've brought students out. Uh, we've done trips in Europe. I've had students go with me to uh, Germany, Italy, Switzerland, Austria, um, all that fun stuff uh, for a week or so. Um, I've also brought uh, students out to San Francisco and the California uh, you know, uh, territories to see some really good architecture there. And of course, Las Vegas. So we do have different opportunities to travel um, for uh, longer periods in the course of still studying in Toronto. Uh, this is not uncommon. We've also got similar uh, travel arrangements in our graduate program. I'm pretty sure Gregor will speak to it in a moment. Um, like uh, we have the Biennale. We send our students every year to either the Chicago or the Venice Biennale. Uh, I'm not so sure about this particular year, but um, that's the general premise. Um, and the last kind of travel is more of the informal travel, which is, of course, um, say, for example, uh, you're taking a course and, it, and it's involved uh, with acoustics. Um, our colleague, Romani, um, he's, he sometimes has taken students to the National Research Labs, uh, just like a bus ride out, leave early, come back late, last, late in the night to just check out the National Research Lab. Or, for example, in studio, I just took a bunch of my students. We all went um, for a day trip to Peterborough to see the Canoe Museum because they're designing a kind of museum. So there's those kinds of levels of academically driven uh, travel opportunities. And then of course there's extracurricular ones or ones that go beyond. And I think all of you guys have been privy to those types. So um, I'm gonna start with you Viv, but we have different types of uh, extracurricular uh, travel, which is still very much enriching for your architectural education. And that ranges from of course, presenting conference papers in various countries or territories, or perhaps um, uh, going out to see other students or other programs um, within the student societies. So I'll, I'll start you off. I'll start off with Viv. Uh, can you just tell us some of those extracurricular opportunities that you've taken uh, taken under your wing? Uh, sure. Um, so, being part of uh, the American Institute of Architecture students, there are a number of conferences that they host during the year, um, and, and they're hosted by different chapters um, throughout the U.S. I mean, well, mostly in Toronto as well as the Middle East. I've had the opportunity to attend uh, Forum Seattle, as, um, which is in Seattle, and then Grassroots, which is held in Washington. Um, those tend to be more kind of networking opportunities. Uh, you meet students uh, studying in different architectural institutions, um, and you also get to attend different lectures, uh, workshops, and really get exposed to uh, what's happening in the architectural scene within those cities. And then um, I've also had the opportunity to attend the ICERI conf conference in Seville, uh, where we had the opportunity to present research papers. And um, as mentioned, this is more of a formal uh, 
kind of conference style. Uh, there's different academics presenting their works as well. Um, and you get to sit in and listen on their work too, which is um, pretty eye-opening. Uh, and then the HUIC um, Arts, Humanities, Sciences, uh, and Education Conference, which was held in Honolulu. And that's also a formal uh, academic conference. It is a real legit conference, just uh, for my colleagues that are listening. It is a legit <laughs> so conference that out. happens to be in Hawaii. All right. So, uh, John, do you care to talk about some of the conferences that, or some of the extracurricular things you've done from a travel perspective? Of course. From a travel perspective, recently, I would say in, in 2018, I've done two. I did the uh, Bergen Wood Festival uh, Wood Pavilion competition with a couple of Ryerson colleagues. Uh, we did that in, I believe it was May of 2018. Yep. And then later on within that year, I participated with Professor J.J. MacArthur at Ryerson. And together we worked on submitting a conference paper for the CIB W78 2018 conference in Chicago. Uh, and primarily that conference is with regards to building, uh, innovation, IT design, and management. Um, and it's a fairly international conference bringing people all from Singapore, from all over the States, and from Canada as well. Uh, and that was about, I would say, just under a week's time. So. Overall, it was an amazing opportunity just to one network with uh, people from different sectors in academia with regards to um, uh, building construction. Because mm -hmm. typically, uh, from what we're used to, uh, primarily architectural design and the architectural science as well, it is a certain uh, niche within architecture. But then there's other elements of building management that you learn about from other uh, other schools that are being brought into the conference. And being able to be in this one I'll say incubator or this one space and just being able to socialize, network, understand what other people are doing with the work and also attending uh, the, the smaller conferences, the smaller presentations. It's an amazing opportunity for an undergraduate student to be a part of and to also to learn from. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And Gregor, you've been around not only just Norway, but also conferences, I gather? Yeah, uh, the most recent one being uh, the same one as Viv. Her and I actually wrote, uh, worked on the paper together, the ICRECA conference in Seville. Oh, for real? Um, oh, I, yeah. I, I yeah, did not know did. that. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, I, I'm just getting old, man. Sorry, pardon my senility. No, no. Um, the, I think what was great about that one was to kind of step out of the architectural bubble a little bit and um, speak with people on uh, about education on a level that kind of, uh, or sorry, a perspective that wasn't inherently architectural and, and kind of be questioned from a, from a different lens. That was sort of interesting to see the type of education we were getting uh, and put it up against other forms of education that were being presented at the conference as well. Mm -hmm. um, but further to that, I think uh, uh, other opportunities, I think of as my first year masters, we, uh, we all did a class trip to Venice for the Biennale, obviously the largest sort of uh, amalgamation of architectural thought going on in the world at the time uh, happening every two years and uh, it was a class trip that was inherently built into a lot of the coursework we were doing um, and and was used as sort of an opportunity to begin to incubate our thoughts for our theses that were coming in the following year but I think just on a much much more like human level it was the first chance for our class to really uh, get together and bond and, um, you know, just have a great time getting to know each other. We were, it's, it's it, going into masters, it's not like first year, you're not all wide-eyed, bushy-tailed and, and excited 
the, the same way you were. So, so kind of like uh, becoming a group and, and really kind of building that camaraderie uh, was necessary. And, and I think that trip was super important for something like that as well. You know what, you're hitting a really important thing that I was going to get to. And I'm glad you actually brokered that one because, I, I, you know, be, between the kind of exchange programs and the extracurricular time types of uh, trips, we've also got really well-defined uh, curricular activities uh, that, that allow for travel. And, and I really want to stress that because a lot of other institutions, let's say, uh, they, they say, oh, you know, we got Paris or we got Rome and that's our, that's our wheelhouse. Well, I'd like to think that, you know, we got the world. And I think that the, the, the kind of range of types of travel as well as the locations um, where we travel really speak to that. Um, and the other part is, of course, when you travel as a class or as a small contingent of students, I think that's really important. I think that we all agree that studio culture is something that's built on family and interacting with other people. And I, I would agree with you, Gregor, that, you know, seeing and working with people in a very concentrated period of time outside of your familiar territories, that becomes interesting. And that that's really something that uh, reinforces those bonds. I mean, when, when you guys uh, travel around, I, I mean, we see this a lot, <clears throat> not only in the uh, Biennale uh, times, but even in first year or even in these types of other uh, coordinated group travel events, we see a lot of bonding arise. And for a faculty member, that, that's really rewarding to see that because you know that it's not a solo effort to do architecture. And, and I'm glad that, that you talk about that. But the other thing I want to hit up on was, of course, students can just collectively have a spring trip. They can all go, I'm going to go and do an architectural travel uh, session with all of you guys. I'm going to bring my classmates and we're going to go to like, let's say Cancun, right? And that's different than say, not necessarily having a chaperone or a prof, but I think there is a value um, from even the bonding side with, with that prof because, um, you know, you hear about uh, God rest her soul, like Kendra took uh, her students to uh, Turkey and, you know, none of the students uh, can, can praise that trip anymore. Like, I mean, they, they, every time they come and visit, um, and they, they always talk about that trip and they were very fortunate to have Kendra who happened to know certain things or certainly when you guys went to uh, Venice, I mean, when, when you go to Venice and you land in Marco Polo airport and you actually have a freaking Marco Polo in your back pocket to guide you through all of Venice. That's pretty impressive. And, you know, it, it's something of an experience that I guess you probably wouldn't have um, if you guys were just going on your own and looking through like a Fodor's kind of uh, Lonely Planet tour guide. Am I correct? Yeah, I, I would say that that's 100% accurate, especially the Marco Polo thing. Um, Marco is just so knowledgeable on the city and the history and the culture to a point where it feels like he can talk about every pebble you find walking on the street. And I think that's where just the these architectural trips as a concept sort of transcend just normal travel. You do things and see things that you would never uh, be able to experience before. One of the most standout ones to me was uh, we met with planners, or sorry, I should rather say a protest group in Venice <laughs> that were trying to... Um, protest the large number of cruise ships that were coming through and the effects that they were having on the canals and, and just the lagoon system and such. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting about it is that they were trying to find uh, that they were asking some of those questions of protest as how they were going to do them sort of architecturally. So they had exhibitions planned that they actually worked on for the Biennale, but then also uh, 
made, made protests by cutting off canals with lots of small boats and planning sort of a larger stagings like that. So I thought that was a very interesting experience as well. I never would have been able to do that had I gone on my own. Yeah, and you, you know what's also interesting? I, I think we're, we're focused on, on Marco and Italy, and it just happens to be that, yeah, I, a person with that type of weight in his name is doing Italy. But uh, I, I also should mention that uh, a couple of other colleagues, obviously, uh, Professor Zaid uh, Liao, he's done uh, almost, I think, 10, if not more, uh, studios in China. Um, and he's taken students, uh, he actually has this really weird, it's almost like a time lapse, but he takes a photo in the same location with all the students in China. And for some weird reasons, like Benjamin Button, he gets younger as the years progress with the students. Um, but he, he's, he's very knowledgeable, obviously he's well-connected uh, in China and he, he's able to give that kind of level of relief. And, you know, interestingly enough, again, not to play the stereotype guys, uh, you guys also are familiar with like Professor Yu Thong Leong and he, though he is uh, of Asian origin, he is fairly knowledgeable and he's been very good about taking students and, and kind of uh, directing the culture uh, scenario where every other year we have our colleagues in Germany, we, we either bring our students to Germany or the German students come to North America. And, uh, you know, Yuthong knows a lot about uh, European architecture and, and the various cities that they go into. So I just think that it does speak to the kind of nature of our faculty in, in, in ensuring that these travel opportunities continue. Which brings me to another random question I had for you guys. I mean, now that you guys are familiar with the bigger picture of architecture, education, and the kind of global perspective, I mean, what destinations would you see, like if, if you guys had your top two locations, I'll start with John, um, where would you say that the university or universities with architecture programs should be looking to expand their uh, portfolio of abroad? Within regards to Ryerson or just in general? I'd say in general, but I mean, Ryerson's a good place to start. Uh, for new schools, um, it's a good question. Like I think the school that I've been to as well as the schools my peers have, which is like Paris, um, Munich, Bergen, those are pretty well-rounded in terms of, I guess, how different they are in terms of the curriculums. Like what Gregor was saying uh, prior, it being a bit more open-ended with the Bergen curriculum. Uh, and then with Delft, it seemed almost on par with Ryerson being uh, equally technical as well as design-oriented. Uh, from what I heard from colleagues in, who did the Paris exchange, that, that seemed to be, um, I'll say, almost a balance too, like uh, heavily art-focused, but still with regards to architecture. For new institutions, that's a good question. Um, I'd love to see possibly ETH Zurich uh, mm -hmm. in Switzerland. That would be, a, I don't know, I think that'd be pretty different from what we already have with our current ensemble of institutions um, to really go out to be a bit more technical and looking at their methods of fabrication. Um, I think, yeah, that'd be uh, just, a, that's a good place to Just start. to fulfill that one. Yeah, I think just to, to give a grounding on that one, ETH Zurich happens to be one of the preeminent uh, institutions that deals with innovations in architecture and fabrication in particular. Um, if you ever want to see groundbreaking work, uh, that is probably the best place to start uh, from a fabrication and innovation standpoint. Uh, Viv, do you have a, an idea of where another location we'd, we'd probably benefit from expanding? I would maybe. Are you take Googling up? Are you Googling, no. <laughs> are you Googling maps right now? Like, I was just, I'm, here, I'm here clicking. I'm like, what? You'd hear the typing. Um, no, I was thinking of it not so much from a, an exchange perspective, but. Um, maybe some sort of um, kind of a cultural stu studio experience. I feel like um, there's a lot happening in countries in West Africa in terms of architecture and um, mm -hmm. vernacular, the incorporation of 
vernacular materials and styles, um, as well as bringing that together with emerging technologies. So I feel like a studio there would be a um, pretty unique experience for students. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think that when we look at these destinations, we and students should also be mindful of the fact that you're not looking at just like the day, uh, um, you know, present day architecture, but look at the markets, look at emerging systems, emerging demand. I mean, if you look back in like when when I was younger, uh, believe it or not, China really wasn't seen as a place to go and do architecture. Middle East didn't really exist aside from like oil reserves. And then of course, those two places became these hotbeds of crazy architecture. And anyone that actually had some sort of vestige connection there, um, and, and, and we'll talk more about that when we get Michelle on for, for her episode. But, uh, you know, a lot of places that had American or North American outposts in uh, architecture over in the Middle East, they served to really benefit and make the, make the real, um, you know, uh, harbingers of, of architecture out there. So I'll bring it to you, Gregor. What do you think is the next place that we should probably be looking at for expanding our portfolio of places to go? It's, it's an interesting question because the things that come to mind for me are not necessarily like large cities or cultural hubs or anything like that. Um, and I'll kind of answer that with an anecdote while we were on exchange, which is, it's kind of weird. It's, it's a, it's a, a, a travel study within my travel study, but as a class from Norway, we went to Thessaloniki in Greece, hmm. never heard of the city before that had no idea what it was. Um, and it's kind of like, uh, I don't know how best to describe it, but it's kind of like, uh, the Ottawa to, to Toronto kind of so thing. So no one lives there, lots of old with, people. With uh, no, just like it's, it's a, I would say more preserved, whereas Athens is super touristy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thessaloniki was, you got the sense that it was a, a genuine Greek cultural experience. And what was interesting to me there is uh, there was a large architecture presence there. They have a whole sort of community center um, dedicated to design and design development, not just architecture, but other design projects. And they run uh, workshops that, that last sometimes a few weeks, sometimes a week, sometimes months. And these projects for developing, uh, for architectural projects that are developed for the city. And through that experience, I got to meet a lot of interesting uh, Greek architectural students, former students, practicing architects, that kind of thing. And so what I would say is like, I think that there's opportunity in sort of small, um, smaller locations and contexts that aren't really visible on the world stage, but are still having significant impacts on a local level. Hmm. So, so you know what, that's, that's an interesting insight because I think a lot of people that might be pondering doing exchanges are like, well, if I haven't really seen that city in the, in the headlines or if it doesn't have over like X million people, then it's too small for me. So, I mean, this opens up my, the door to another couple of questions I had about, hey, Gregor, I'll start with you. Um, mm -hmm. What tips would you have then for students that are looking at doing exchanges? I mean, I just gave that one based on what you said, like, don't just look for the big name cities, right? Like go for something that's going to be relevant to you, something of interest to you, something that might prove to be beneficial to your long-term, you know, uh, career goals or, or the fields of study in, in, in grad school. So, I mean, what other tips would you have? I'll start with you and then I'll keep on going around. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because when I was looking at uh, different exchange opportunities, uh, at the time I was specifically trying to prepare myself sort of for um, 
the master's program I was heading into after fourth year. And what I felt like I needed to work on the most was sort of uh, my conceptual background and, you know, uh, conceptual thinking and architecture. And so I chose Nor Bergen specifically because it had a, a reputation for uh, that sort of outside the box thinking. Mm. Um, but then there was also sort of uh, the cultural aspect of it. As much as I wanted to improve uh, the sort of conceptual toolbox, I also wanted for a long time to experience uh, Norwegian culture and, and such. And the kind of the prospect of going to a small town like Bergen nestled into the mountains versus the, the big city of Toronto was very uh, enticing to me. And so I kind of I kind of looked at it from the way of uh, what did I want to work on? And I first sort of uh, chose the schools and the programs that I felt like would best benefit me and then looked at what else I wanted to get out of uh, the experience beyond so, education. So if I get that, the, the big tip there is just really do your homework to find out what every given opportunity, every travel opportunity affords you to then see how it aligns with what you would want to do for your own career path if i just yeah. that one. okay yeah I, I think that that's one that's one way to look at it yeah okay so then I'll, I'll throw it to you john i mean you've done research as well as the exchange um what would you say is a good tip for students in our program looking at or pondering those travel opportunities uh even to what you were saying before like pretty much do your homework do your research um specifically for myself i looked at the um the research papers that were being published from those institutions um in my particular example, it was with regards to either Delft or Stuttgart. Um, Delft, they had a lot of interesting sustainability research um, that was coming out, as well as material research. Uh, and then with regards to Stuttgart specifically, they have amazing research, research pavilions that they do every year. Um, and so it was those two things that really compelled me to have those two at the top of my list of uh, things to pursue, mainly just because of the work that each institution was completing. And there's tons of resources you can find online uh, with that, whether it's the direct institutions, websites, um, mm. any social media handles, or even um, other design like magazines or companies that are just promoting that work. Uh, so it's not too hard to find the research or do the research in accordance with the work that's being done from the institutions. Okay. So, I mean, you two gentlemen have spoken about the research and the homework that you'd have to do on an institution if you were doing exchange. But now I'm going to throw it back to you, Viv, because I think as a person that's involved uh, uh, with the student societies, one of the biggest questions is, okay, so I'm a second year, I'm a first year, I really haven't got my grad applications, you know, thought about. Uh, there are lots of extracurricular opportunities. I keep on hearing about these, you know, trips to go and do X, Y, and Z with, you know, any given student organization. I, I mean, what tips would you have for a first or second year student that might want to be involved, not necessarily in exchange, because it's beyond them at this point in time, but in, in these other opportunities that are available? I would say the biggest thing is to kind of just put yourself out there, uh, engage with the students who are planning the conferences themselves, since they most likely have um, all the resources regarding, or the most resources regarding the um, conferences that they're hosting. Um, so I would say that would be a great first step, but also just visiting and um, as everyone mentioned, doing your research. Uh, for example, with the American Institute of Architecture students, they tend to have uh, Instagram pages for the different conferences that are happening and those share uh, the speakers and the schedule for the conferences. So um, going through that and seeing if it aligns with things that you're interested in or would like to learn uh, is probably a great idea uh, beforehand. Um, but I also think when you're in first and second year, it's great to just like be a sponge and 
kind of absorb as many different experiences as possible. Um, because I think in order to have an interest in certain things, you should have experienced it first or had a little taste of it. Hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, putting yourself out there is a big one. Well, I'm going to throw it back a little bit to the gentleman here, but I, I just want to draw attention to the fact that, because I, I was asking specifically with first and second years, because they don't have that ability to not only foresee what they want to do, but also they just really don't know uh, all the stuff that's available. So I, I did want to talk about very quickly um, the fact that we have a night where all the, where most of the kids that have done the abroad session do a little bit of a presentation. Uh, and and I, I think John, Gregor, can you guys uh, briefly talk about that? Because I think if you guys can talk about that, then I think uh, one of you guys talks about the kind of presentation session. I'll throw that to you, uh, Gregor. And then John, if in the back of your mind, you can think about anything to add to that, but also how do you even get involved with the exchanges? Okay, so Gregor, starting with you, man, what about those presentation days? Uh, probably not the best person to talk about. Okay, forget you, John. John, all right. <laughs> okay, ignore Gregor. John, invert this. Tell me, how'd that presentation go when you came back? Yeah, of course. So we were reached out by the department. Um, about, like, I think pretty much all of the exchange students uh, were reached out just to give a pretty much a rundown of our experiences, lessons learned, uh, things we would have done differently. For students who just want to listen, who are very, I guess, new to the idea of exchange or are curious about what institutions we went to and also, you know, experiences we pretty much had. Uh, so the overall workflow was just getting reached out to and then conversing with the departments. I believe we had about six or seven presentations from Ryerson as well, but there was also presentations from the exchange students that were coming to Ryerson as well. So mm. it's not only just us going, it's also the students are coming to our school to learn as well. So, so that, that happens in like uh, October or when would you say that happens? Uh, I believe so. From the top of my head, um, it was like October, November during that time. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. So, so at that point, it's not like right off in September. The 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 students that are new to the place are are, are getting warmed up. So, um, it's it and it's not going to catch you in off guard because of the craziness at the start of term. So that's good. That's good to know. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. And and again, first year all the way through to the general public are available to see these presentations. I gather. Uh, I'm not too sure about the general public, but um, it is um, it is sent out. There are emails that are sent out to the people uh, within the institution of, uh, okay. of Ryerson, as well as there is no, um, I guess I would say, censoring of who can come and who can't. I think if someone is curious about pursuing that or just wanting to learn, I, I can imagine it's totally open for those people. Okay. Okay. That's good. Now, since Gregor, you got issues with the presentation, can you at least tell us how you got to go to you know, Norway then? Uh, yeah, I can definitely can. It's not, it's not that I was dodging my responsibility. Hey, I'm not, uh, hey, no, hey, I'm not asking, <laughs> hey, don't have to apologize, man. We'll, we'll, we're, we're being uh, recorded right now, okay? I'm not asking. Um, no, uh, I kind of got it through the grapevine. So doing co-op, uh, I was uh, sort of um, delayed from doing my fourth year from my original cohort of students. And so I got to see a bunch of my friends do Norway in exchange before me. And so kind of uh, watching their journey, you know, today in the age of social media, see what they were doing. It, it really intrigued me as to uh, what kind of city Bergen was and, and the kind of work that they were doing over there. And so when they came back, um, as opposed to the presentation, I spoke with them specifically. And, uh, and then obviously with Paul Florka, who organizes the exchanges, um, or at least did before. And, uh, and that's kind of how I came 
uh, to discover uh, the exchange program and, and Bergen specifically. But I think that uh, there's a dimension here that most people aren't aware of. And I think it's important to talk about very briefly. Um, the fact that it's not an assured thing, right? Like, it's not like anyone that signs up, I want to I have the money and I want to go to Norway, I'm in, right? What, what kind of reality TV show happens for them to get for you to go to Norway? Um, there's a, there's definitely a process. It's, yeah, as Vin said, it's not just like a sign up and you're going. Um, first and foremost, you have to uh, sign up. The Ryerson specifically needs to get a picture of uh, sort of the pool of students that are interested in uh, a variety of programs. And when you sign up, you are not just signing up for one, you're signing up for your sort of top three. Uh, the reality of it is, is that exchange is an agreement between two universities. So if uh, we're sending three students, they're sending three students. It's, it's about that trade and that equal balance. And so the university wants to be able to make sure that those numbers balance themselves out. And so we, you begin by signing up, there's information periods. Um, uh, the, the biggest push then is uh, developing portfolio. Uh, I believe a bit of, there was a bit of writing as well, making a case for why you feel like um, that specific exchange program is best for you. And then uh, Bergen specifically review, or sorry, sorry first uh, Ryerson reviews all the submissions, mm -hmm. um, chooses three, I believe three uh, students that they would like to send over. And then Bergen, uh, in my case, gave, gives the final kind of go, no go as to whether they'll accept the students or not. Now, um, I, I know that different institutions have different criteria, but uh, gentlemen, I just want to make sure that our audience knows, was there um, a particular grade point average or academic performance criteria or can I if I have like a borderline 50 probation degree uh, you know CGPA am I kosher to apply or, or what, what what are what are the regulations that I should know about I can't remember off the top of my head specifically if there was a grade point average um, but I do remember that um, that your your grade point average and, and your marks do kind of factor into the decision making process yeah, I would assume so because yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't think the university, if it can only send three people, it's not going to send the worst ambassadors possible, <laughs> right? I mean, I'd like to think that we sent you uh, to Norway, not because of your incredible hairy Jason Momoa kind of look. <laughs> it's, it's the actual fact that you're academically smart and you're actually going to be a really good representative of our program, correct? Similarly, yeah. John, I mean, they're throwing you, who at that point was just finishing third year, right? And now you're going to be, you know, shuffling up with uh, master students. So I don't think that there, it could be possible to say that, yeah, if you got like a C average, congratulations, you're on exchange. Am I correct, boys? Yeah. No, no, of course. I think there is a reality that you need to be at a certain level. Um, at the top of my head, I think it was uh, borderline 3.0 as the minimum. Um, mm -hmm. I, don't quote me on that. I'm just from what I can recall. But I think there's also a level of well-roundedness. Like it is from what uh, Gregor was saying with regards to uh, the portfolio work you've done. I think also work experience is also a great asset to have. Mm -hmm. um, and then also there was letters of recommendations, I believe from professors that you have to have. So just some sort of uh, face value or so a, a point of reference to add credibility to what, uh, to who you are, what the work you've done from what I recall. Oh, wow. Um, yep. I, I think I think I recall having to write a few uh, letters. But fortunately, at that point, Paul Florica, who's my next door neighbor in the office, is, um, it was just knock on my door and just go, who, who's good and who's don't even touch. So I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. There is some validation from the prof side as well.
also to add to that, there's also an interview process um, with professor as well, with, with Paul Forte. Um, so that was also just, again, I think another level of verification of your intentions, of the work you can do, and also any other questions that uh, professor might have. Well, so that's what, that was what I was going to get to, because I said, so beyond the kind of academic rigors, I mean, are there any, like, I mean, we're going to France, we're going to Germany. I mean, listen, man, Gregor, you can't even tell me what open network is in Norwegian, and you were studying for God knows how long there. So obviously, is, is there a language requirement, too, that we should know about? I think every, every exchange is kind of slightly different mm -hmm. on that sense. Um, Norway actually didn't have a language requirement. Uh, never, never really felt the need to learn or know Norway there. Everyone speaks just Norwegian, you mean? Or, oh yeah, Norwegian, sorry. Um, <laughs> everyone just speaks like amazingly fluent English there, which was uh, kind of one of the most shocking things. Like I, I knew they spoke English well, but I was surprised as to what extent. Um, but I think, I think John can speak to that better because if I remember correctly, oh no, uh, you didn't go to Germany, sorry. I remember some of the German schools I was looking at had uh, some basic language requirements as well as Paris required you to have us take a, an English speaking, or sorry, an English speaking, French, French speaking examination yes. and make sure you had a certain level in the language. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that we, we gotta be mindful of that as well because again, different institutions have different requirements. Um, and I know that we've since opened up uh, different to different institutions as well. So like we have uh, some exchange opportunities with even domestic uh, with Laval, but obviously there's a very strong French requirement because all of uh, the courses are taught in French. So I, I just thought I'd put all those things in perspective now. And this is where I think we've kind of covered all the benefits. We've kind of we've covered all the types. We've covered the experiences and how to get mobilized and prepared, but now that they're, you guys kind of got them all under your belt, give me some good stories. I want to I I be entertained now. So I'm going to throw it to you, Viv. Tell me, give me at least one good story from your travels. Uh, okay, no pressure. Um, I'm during uh, the uh, conference trip to Hawaii. Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> do I know um, about this? Do I know about this? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Pretty sure you do. Um, but one of our um, one of our um, activities planned out was snorkeling, and um, unfortunately, the day we decided to go snorkeling was um, I don't know how to describe the weather that day, but the water was pretty. Um, uh, what is the word? Choppy. Yeah, choppy. <laughs> um, and during the um, intro we received regarding the equipment, they asked if we wanted to put um, if we w wanted to have an extension piece to snorkel that kind of keeps water out and I don't know why I felt like I didn't need one but I didn't ask for one and then when we kind of went out to sea one of the requirements was that or one of the rules was that you're not allowed to step on the coral um, for obvious reasons and so went out um, I got water in my goggles um, which means I couldn't breathe and then I got water in my um, mouthpiece as well so I was really struggling to breathe. And <laughs> I think you were nearby as well, Vince. Um, but uh, I, I will disavow <laughs> everything and anything you say right now. <laughs> okay. Um, but it was, it was a really interesting moment because it's Hawaii, it's really beautiful. And in that moment, I was convinced I was gonna die. Um, I made it obviously, but um, looking back was a really funny um, and um, Something that I've learned from, because I think in the future, if I do go snorkeling or do any activity, definitely just follow whatever is recommended. 
Okay, so just for the record, A, I in no way knew that a uh, student was going to die under my watch. Oh, B, I was... <laughs> uh, no, and, and B, I didn't know that my student uh, in question was committing a federal offense because in Hawaii, if you kill nature, uh, you can get charged heavily. Like you touch a turtle, you get, you know, huge, huge, huge $5,000 fines. So, I'm not even asking, hey, hey, don't, we're being recorded, man. Stop. Okay. okay. So, John, can you redeem this? Give me, give me another travel fun story, man. Travel fun story off the top of my head. Um, well, in the first month of Delft, we were just getting our uh, feet planted on the ground, getting like our housing in order and stuff. But like once all that was done, we decided to do a, I believe it was just a weekend trip to Paris. Uh, we had one of our um, uh, exchange friends there as well, um, studying in the, uh, the school in Paris. So we were there, uh, it was a great time. We ended up using Flexbus or Flixbus. Um, it's just um, pretty much a coach bus, a double-decker coach bus. Uh, probably one of the cheaper ways of getting around Europe. And so we did that. The way of getting there, it's like nine hours. It wasn't too bad. Um, but then coming back, we took a, uh, we planned this with our school schedule, but I think we took it at 12 a.m. or 1 a.m. Um, we, we just planned it to be like super late. So then once we get to um, back to Rotterdam and then like go up to Delphi, it would just be like 9 a.m. So we can just like get ready to go back to school. Um, but so it was the last bus at the bus station. And for some reason, uh, there was a group about maybe 10 people like who just missed the bus. Uh, like the doors closed. Once the doors closed, it, I don't know, it seemed pretty um, extreme. But like once they closed the cabin doors for the storage, they legally can't open them because like everything is locked. And like I guess with regards to liability and stuff, like all the luggage is there, so nothing will get lost and nothing mm -hmm. is opened up for the the people going on that. And so it was the last bus there, uh, the last bus to leave, and. It was like a Sunday morning or a Monday morning. And those 10 people were just completely pissed beyond belief. And they delayed the about they delayed the bus, honestly, for about an hour. It was like a screaming match between them and the bus driver. It felt so bad for the bus driver. Wow. And it got it got so extreme to a point where they actually pried the doors open and the bus driver just sped off. And like people were hanging on the bus. It was kind of like um, if you watch World War Z or like yes. 28 days later or anything like that. It's literally that. Wow. So it was definitely a good way to uh, wake up at like wow. one in the morning. Um, but yeah, that was probably okay. the most extreme. <laughs> okay, extreme so now now we're two for two for things that you should not have disclosed on broadcast <laughs> uh, for student experience. Uh, so one kid almost died. One kid was on the cusp of dying. Um, and Gregor, redeem this, please. Tell me something about like I don't know kittens or something, man. Give me something safe. Ah, uh, okay, fine. Okay, maybe not. No, give me a good one. Give me a good one. Give me, give me a good one. Well, uh, the redeem. I'll, I'll start with the redeeming story. Uh, it goes back to the Greek uh, trip when we were working Jesus. with the students there. The, it, within that, that group, there was a, uh, a small cohort who ran this sort of uh, kind of architecture co-op. Uh, basically, they rent this basement space where they all work out of. And uh, in order to fund the co-op, they throw massive rager parties oh, with like geez. 300 people in the basement. Don't worry, Vince. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but uh, our class from Bergen... We were there they invited us to that party and so we were all uh hanging out having a good time and uh it just so happened to be my birthday that weekend and uh they found out that day the, the greek students and uh they shut down the whole party and uh sang me happy birthday uh after knowing me for only a week and it was a it was a really cool moment because being away from home and from from all my friends it was uh it was nice to see that there are so many good people out there uh, 
uh, willing to celebrate uh, birthdays with random strangers. So or maybe it was the, I don't know, amphetamines and alcohol. I'm just saying. Well, I didn't ruin that story, Vince. Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes, I forgot. All kids drink Kool-Aid and like, uh, fine. Next. <laughs> um, the, the other great, the other story I had, that this was kind of the, the nuttiest experience from my exchanges. Uh, like John, I was visiting some friends in Paris that were on exchange there. And uh, the, the night before my last day in Paris, uh, I got robbed. And... Uh, <laughs> They stole my passport. Why are you oh. saying this stuff? <laughs> Holy... Okay, fine. Go finish it. Um, but it was uh, it was terrifying thinking that I was never going to be able to leave Paris. But uh, long story short, I had a very long day working with the Canadian embassy to prove who I was, get signed uh, affidavits and and sponsorships from my friends. And uh, one very expensive exchange later, I had a temporary passport and was uh, ready to go home the next day. But it def definitely an eye-opening experience and kind of really, really, really teaches you how to be self-sufficient and, you know, take care of yourself while you're abroad. Because okay. the reality is sometimes you, you are on your own and you, you have to be able to, uh, to face that and take care of yourself when things go wrong. Okay, so I'm learning now as an amateur podcast maker here, uh, I should really vet the questions before I let you guys answer them. <laughs> Jesus, man, you guys, none of you guys gave good stories to like, oh yeah, man, I feel totally safe doing anything. For the record, uh, and you guys listen, it is completely safe. All three of these people, say it now, um, really did enjoy and had safe experiences because they're all back alive. Yes? Yep. Yes. yes. Thank you very much. Oh, Jesus. Um, so with that, I know we've gone long, but uh, thank you very much for your time, guys. Um, just in closing, you got uh, 10 seconds each. Tell me, why should I take why why should I take exchanges? Starting with Viv, or Pardon? not exchanges? Why should I take a, why should I take advantage of the travel opportunities in ten seconds? Viv, go. Um, unique opportunity to see other parts of the world. John, I think with regards to architecture, it's one thing to learn about it, but it's another thing to experience. Nice call, Gregor. Uh, you're never going to be able to do the kind of things you do on these exchanges uh, on your own like amphetamines and alcohol. But anyways, let's keep it safe. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, guys. I do appreciate the time. Um, and I know that uh, many of you guys listening, it's a bit of a tease given that uh, unfortunately travel is not on the priority list right now. Um, but at the very least, some of you guys that are listening that are younger will definitely have these opportunities to take advantage of. So we at least planted seeds there. Um, and hopefully uh, you guys got enough of an insight on how to participate, how to engage it, and what we actually have to offer. So thank you very much. And once again, thank you to you three. That's Viv, John, and Gregor. Thank you again. Thank you for inviting. All right. Take care, guys.